Right, so hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the BSSH Sport in History podcast. I'm Connor Heffernan. It's been a while since I've uh, been doing this. I've certainly left Jeff do a lot of the grunt work, which I do apologize for and I'm very grateful for. But I'm very happy um, to come back to speak with Connor Murray. Connor is doing his doctoral work at the Dublin City University and he is another fine, upstanding Irish historian looking at sporting history. So I'm very excited to uh, keep things Irish for another week at least. So I'll start by asking Connor to, well, I'll start by thanking Connor for joining us and then I'll start by asking Connor, maybe if you introduce yourself and then what your research is looking at at the moment. Hi, Connor. Uh, very glad to be speaking to you today. Um, as you said, I'm a final year PhD student at Dublin City University in a project that's funded by the Irish Research Council, who you may be familiar with. Um, I'm formerly of Ulster University in Coleraine, where I compete, completed my undergraduate and master's research. So I'm, I think I'm into year, ten, year nine of university. So I think I'm hoping this is the last one. It's best, uh, it's best not to actually count how many years you've been in university because I think well, we're I'm all... Well, I'm running out of fingers, so we need to be ending quite soon. <laughs> we're, we're all slightly institutionalized. Just you never comment on it is the truth. I think that's the best thing to do. I think now that I've acknowledged it, I can't avoid it. <laughs> so in, in this uh, last cage of emotion, which is of your own doing, um, what are you researching at DCU? Well, essentially, this project began as a history of what the GAA referred to as foreign games in post-partition Ireland. Uh, at this point, the plan is to complete the project concerning rugby and association football, north and south, from a pox for Brittany 1922 to 1990, although that's maybe subject to some change, but that's where we stand currently. And in terms of, okay, so foreign games, obviously the Gaelic Athletics Association has had an interesting relationship with soccer and rugby uh, until they needed money in the early noughties and 2010s and brought them back into the fold. So why are you starting the study in, say, 1922? And why are you doing that kind of longer period of history? Because it's quite a rare thing. A lot of work has been done kind of up to the split and maybe a decade or two afterwards, but yeah. no one has taken that very long approach to these two sports. Well, I promise you that the, the answer to that is not vanity. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think this came from when I was doing my master's or preparing for my master's dissertation at Ulster University. The key bit of coursework in the spring semester was essentially a historiographical essay to prepare me for my master's thesis, which was concerning uh, cultural identity and sport in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement. So essentially what I said myself was a broad sweep at everything that's been written on the history of sport in modern Ireland. And two things emerged from that as far as I was concerned was that one, it was overwhelmingly distorted towards the GAA, first of all, and also for the period of the sporting revolution circa 1870 to 1860 to 1914. So therefore, I, I decided that foreign games, so-called, sorry, so-called foreign games, and the period following the Irish Revolutionary Period was going to be my twin approach. And we've just sort of proceeded from there. So that historiographical essay was probably the best unintended piece of coursework I've ever done that set me up very well for this. So a shout out to Kyle Hughes and Don McGreal from Ulster University for that. I'm glad you look, you look at it fondly. And I suppose a question that I should ask, and if people aren't aware, obviously we have two soccer, I, I'm saying soccer because I'm based in the US. We have two soccer federations um, in Ireland, but one rugby federation. Uh, how different are the trajectories of these two sports then based on the kind of all-Ireland rugby team versus the FAI in the Republic and the IFA uh, in the North? Well, I think that it provides a very a very clean cut distinction to make when analyzing the two sports against one another in that one is an all Ireland body and that the other is operates as two separate iterations of Ireland, so to speak. Uh, obviously they both began in late 1870s, early 1880s as single governing bodies. And obviously, as we know, due to the work from Cormac Moore and others that the soccer federation or the, the IFA, which still exists in Belfast, had a little problem with their noisy neighbours from Leinster in 1921. So basically, essentially, people like me 
had an issue with people like you <laughs> in terms of where we come from anyway. I'm not saying I would have held the same position <laughs> as the IFA in 1921, but and that split has endured for almost a century now. And as far as I'm concerned, based on the work that I've done, the two associations are further away than ever. So there's, I say, zero prospect of any sort of football unification anyway in the, the coming future. And has that ever been anything? So obviously you, you mentioned Cormac Moore's, um, the Irish soccer split, which yep. to me as someone who kind of tangentially reads uh, about this, it seems like just ego and Irish stubbornness are kind of the main cruxes of that. And then obviously we get further along the line things like sectarianism and kind of broader institutional um, bureaucracy coming into this. But is there ever a point in the period that you've studied where there seems to be a coming together of, say, the IFA in Northern Ireland and the FAI and the Republic? Or is the split happens 1920s and then from there the two shall never meet again? Oh, I guess you could... I, I would answer this in a couple of ways. In terms of the actual bodies, the governing bodies themselves, in a word, no. Uh, in terms of the clubs that were affiliated to those two bodies, there was a significant amount of cross-border interaction during the period in which the two associations were essentially embroiled in a Cold War. One of, the, one of my favourite discoveries throughout this was a series of games that the press referred to as the unofficial championship of Ireland which took place between 1926 and 1941 which was essentially a playoff game between the Irish League winners and the League of Ireland winners and that was the most surprising discovery I've made in that whilst the the two governing bodies were at loggerheads every year with FIFA over who was the true Ireland their senior clubs were cooperating covertly to stage a big match either in Belfast or in Dublin mostly (laughs) each year so it seems like it was there was unity on the ground perhaps we could say and the split was in the committee rooms and it stayed there Fascinating and I think it's funny when you mention that I mean obviously Paul Rouse and others have looked at say during the the heyday of the ban on foreign games where players would play for the Gaelic team one week, then for the soccer team another week under a different alias. So are there different aliases going on? Is, you know, Belfast Celtic calling itself Belfast Rovers for one week so that they can play in an All-Ireland game? Uh, the way that, uh, as far as I can see, the way that the clubs got around um, arranging these fixtures was the governing bodies would not sanction official fixtures against teams from the other jurisdiction. So... The clubs organised these games as charity matches, you know, in, in aid of the British Red Cross or in aid of an injured player. I think one year in the 1930s, it was for a gentleman named Harold McCaw. He was a, an Irish League striker who had broken his leg or something. So they were organising the games with perhaps spurious justifications in order to enabled to go ahead but I mean there can be no doubt that the for example the FAI in Dublin knew that these fixtures were taking place whenever all of the Dublin news well a lot of the Dublin newspapers were openly advertising the games such as in Daily Mount Park or in in uh, Tolka or not Tolka Park sorry Daily Mount Park mostly so the associations knew these things were going on and chose not to put a stop to it so there was definitely a disconnect between the clubs and the associations in which they were affiliated and something, just when you note this kind of, uh, that this awareness of what's going on, but not maybe acting on anything. Something that I've been very interested about in the trajectories of, say, soccer in Northern Ireland and soccer in the Republic is that there's a really strange situation which, you know, Northern Ireland qualifies for the World Cup in the late 1950s and has kind of a, a golden age. Again, I think it's in the 1980s. Like prior to the Republic, say, getting to the European Championships, getting to the World Cup, when Northern Ireland goes to the World Cup in the 1950s or when it goes to another major international tournament you know, before the Republic of Ireland, is there ever a soul-searching moment in the Republic where they're wondering how a six-county Northern Ireland can seem to be flourishing on the international stage while the Republic is effectively stagnating for 50 to 60 years with the odd victory 
kind of thrown in. And I say this as if the Republic is now a powerhouse of soccer, which obviously it isn't. But it's strange that it's the 90s for the Republic, but it's a lot earlier yeah. for Northern Ireland. Uh, the only thing that I could see um, in an official sense from the FAI archives in the 1950s was not so much you know, a bewilderment or a jealousy that the, the smaller of the two states had qualified for the World Cup, but efforts went into overdrive and almost to delegitimize their use of the free of the word of the title Ireland, sorry. So you see correspondence between not only actually not only FAI sort of officials, but also Irish government ministers sending letters to FIFA suggesting that the the Northern Football Association was not entitled to use Ireland. And I mean the, the response from the IFA in Belfast was pretty much checkmate in that they were the IFA to begin with. Therefore, it was their franchise to give away if they wanted. So essentially it was a delegitimizing effort on the part of the FAI rather than any sort of explicit jealousy or um, confusion as to how this happened. And if- incidentally, incidentally, the IFA were being pressured to withdraw from their first ever World Cup because they could not get a guarantee that they would not be playing games on Sundays. That's fascinating. And I mean, if anyone has read the recent book, Champagne Football, um, about the latest uh, difficulties in the FAI, it's reassuring to know that it's actually a longer term effort of not sustaining Irish football. I'm so glad I'm, I'm able to remind you that my, my study ends in 1990 and therefore I cannot <laughs> be drawn on the, the more recent period of FAI history. That's for somebody else. As it's still getting untangled, it's probably best for both of us not to speak on yeah. it. So something maybe connected to that effort to delegitimize is, say, the issue of funding. So as someone who kind of briefly got a heyday of football in the Republic during the Celtic Tiger, where, you know, there's European Knights, etc. I am under the ignorant impression that Northern Irish football has tended to have more money in it than football in the Republic, because I know you're dealing a lot with kind of gate receipts um, and football finances. Is that something that actually plays out in the history? Like, do we see one territory having a lot more finance in the club game than the other or are they kind of on an even keel? Um, as far as I can see and maybe this is through the very very distorted lens of current modern football especially in England it looks like both associations were living hand to mouth for decades mm. I know I've been studying the gate receipts and the, the annual re- reports and whatever, but there, there wasn't much there much to really invest in the game it was it was they were breaking even most years if they were lucky. So I don't I don't accept the the argument that some people would make that, you know, say Northern Ireland had all the money or the IFA always had the money because of their links with the international board. I don't think that really holds up in what I've seen anyway. Okay, that's fascinating. So there there's my Republic bias uh going in. My my brief stint as a Shelburne uh fan where we had longingly looked towards Northern Ireland where all the money was. Um, I, also, I, had a, I had a comparable spell as a Cliftonville fan, so we both come at this from, <laughs> from some lived experience. Yeah, well, that's reassuring at least. So I suppose before we move on to um, the rugby kind of yeah. side of your research, I know you're working a lot in kind of GIS mapping as well. My knowledge of GIS mapping doesn't really go beyond the fact that I know what GIS stands for, and I know that you'll be using maps to kind of territorially cite these kind of hotspots of activity. My yeah. understanding is your study is going to be one of the first kind of major studies in Irish history to use GIS mapping. I know Tom Hunt and Conor Curran and Pat Bracken and others um, have used maps in their own research, but I think yours would be the first to use that kind of, as I said again, that long period of history to track that out. So what has GIS mapping, well, what is it first? And then how has it, I suppose, influenced or shaped some of your findings on soccer uh, in an all-island study? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my, my interaction with GIS software stemmed from one of the fundamental questions underlying this interest of mine is, to put it in its most blunt terms, why are certain sports popular in certain places among certain groups of people? Which, if there was a, like a, a single line answer to that, that would be great. But unfortunately, that doesn't exist. So my approach has been to you know, survey the governing bodies in terms of their official statistics as to how many clubs there was, say, in County Limerick in 1937, for example, you know. So trying to get that body of 
statistical sort of quantitative data over the entire period and then trying to almost trace those patterns onto a map to show where the real hotspots of activity were. Um, I've been very fortunate that the, the school here is also the school, of hist is the school of history and geography. Therefore, the geography end of the school has really given me the skills in order to be able to do this. Otherwise, I would be just lost in a whole pile of statistics. Um, giving me a sense of hometown pride, uh, by far the most violent football city in, in Ireland is Belfast, so we do at least win something. I mean, it's the little victories that you need to take. Uh, in, in, that, in that on my map, which was scaled to colour, it was glowing bright red, County Antrim, for all the violence, where some of the other counties were sort of very, very mild oranges or very, very dull colours, whereas bright red, probably for the blood that was spilled, was uh, characterising County Antrim. Um, and a macabre question uh, to ask on that is, and I, I feel it's slightly trite, but I probably should address the troubles and the impact that that has on Irish soccer. Um, obviously, Northern Ireland is more affected um, for obvious reasons, but do we see kind of violence or sectarian um, disputes emerging in games between, say, the Republic and then Northern Ireland? Because obviously, as you found in your research, hooliganism in Ireland is a time-honored tradition uh, dating back to the 1920s, if not earlier. So do we see a huge spike and a politicization of the game in, say, the 1970s or late 1960s? That, it's interesting you ask that. The, when it was in the FAI archives, it was actually an incident of football spectator violence in the Republic of Ireland during the Troubles that sent me down a very, very deep rabbit hole that I emerged from six months later and 25,000 words later. So I think it was it was Bohemians versus Newcastle United in the UEFA Cup in 1977. There was record of this, or there was comment on this in the I, in the FAI minutes, and I sort of stepped back from it in the UCD archives and thought, okay, that's interesting. I wonder how many times that's happened. And like I say, six months later, the answer was 73 times between September 1912 and April 1987. So that was a a very, very extensive detour that I had to eventually pull myself back from, but we did get an additional chapter on soccer in terms of the spectator aspect of soccer that was very, very interesting. And a lot of the violence was in the Irish Revolutionary period, especially it seemed like every time Belfast Celtic stepped onto the field, there was gunshots getting fired and there was bricks getting hurled onto the pitch. Uh, but pretty much throughout the, the decades, particularly in the cities, not so much in the sort of provincial towns, but in the cities, there was running pitch battles between different sets of supporters. You know, there was, I'm sorry to the people of Waterford, but their team was very, very frequently involved in battles against Dublin teams. So there might be a sort of towny, culty sort of thing going on there. That's in the 1960s and 70s. But in the Northern Ireland context, it was from 1912 to 1948 until Belfast Celtic folded. There was a lot of violence between Celtic and Linfield and Glintorn and the other clubs that you might consider to have been of a unionist persuasion. So there was political violence. There was, there was violence between the, the sort of security forces and, and sets of fans. There was, um, there was sort of violence in reaction to events on the pitch. You know, it seems like if, if the, Spectators got excited by like a, a red card that they thought was given for very flimsy reasons. It was their excuse to invade the field and attack the referee. And then you have some of the more enjoyable moments of the last few years was uncovering incidents that I have just categorized as other, such as when a referee stabbed the player in County Armagh in 1927, or when the referee attacked his own linesman in Dublin in 1924. They're the sort of incidents that I haven't quite got close to an acceptable sociological explanation yet, but I'm hoping to get there in the next 10 months. Um, that, that took a turn. Um, I know VAR yeah, that, that, adding... that, that, that was exactly my thoughts. If, <laughs> VAR, if VAR had been around between 1912 and 1987, the referees might as well have just taken a seat in the stand and let them get on with it because it was an incredibly violent game. <laughs> 
I'm just I'm just waiting for you know now in 2020 or 2021 the referee or the fourth official is going to smash the VAR screen over say a player or you know in like a WWF uh, style heel turn. I think maybe that's where your research is telling me. I mean, if someone stabs a linesman, that's probably an indication that you know my dreams of a a heel turn of Jeff Jarrett smashing a guitar over someone's head may actually come true. Promise you, I I know who you're talking about here. I know who Jeff Jarrett is. I know what a heel turn is. So I'm hoping I'm the first guest of yours that actually knows what they are. <laughs> but okay. um, the chances of, you know, the chances of, I'm trying to think of a referee, the chances of, you know. Maybe best to accuse yourself from naming a referee who's likely to attack. Yes, yes, actually, individual. yes, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, the chances of Mark Clattenburg or Graham Pohl back in the day or somebody like that Stabbing a player live on Sky Sports or live on BT Sport are very, very slim. But you never know. It's interesting how the game has changed. It has evolved a lot, as everyone says. So that's that's a very, very mild way to put it. So we'll just we'll go with that and we'll move on. So on a very um laboured segue from stabbing to rugby. Uh so obviously you have this lovely inbuilt contrast in Irish soccer because we have Northern Ireland has its own football federation, which is actually the older of the two states. And then we have the Republic of Ireland has this kind of upstart, for want of a better phrase, football association. In rugby, we have that unity um, and we have that all-Ireland body. Is that because rugby comes from a different socioeconomic class that, and, and it has different geographical strongholds than, say, soccer? Like, why don't we have a, a rugby split in the same way that we have a soccer split in Ireland? Mm, that's a good question. The, there's no doubt that to some extent rugby does have a different social class base than association football. I wouldn't say that was directly um, relevant to the fact that they survived partition, however. And it may seem very, you know, very limited in explanation, but essentially they survived partition by just ignoring it. Just pretending that it didn't happen. Uh, rugby, as I'm sure you know, is very much rooted in its traditions. Therefore, they decided that their traditional provincial structure was not going to be affected by any rabble in Dublin or any rabble in Belfast. So they just decided to continue as had been before then. I think more relevant is probably the fact that rugby's base in sort of elite educational settings which had existed prior to partition, obviously remained unaffected by partition and those things continued on. So that the conveyor belt to provide the, the playing base and then later the administrative base of the game continued unaffected by you know, political revolution and, and the partition of the island. So I don't think there was ever a case when the, the unity of the RFU was ever really challenged in, in the way that it was for soccer in 1921. So. But it's unquestionable that they do have very, very different and diverging social class bases. Um, I, I think saying, you know, that they simply ignored partitions, something that, say, American students of mine really struggle with is the Irish ability to downplay quite serious things. World War II, the emergency, conflict in Northern Ireland, the troubles. Like, there's a tendency, I think, in the people of Ireland to just naturally downplay things. So the fact that they would ignore partition, or at least, you know, try and ignore partition, doesn't actually shock or surprise me um, that much. Essentially, the attitude was, ah, it'll, it'll be fine, let's go on, or it'll be grand. Depending on what city you're from, it, it, the people of Dublin said, it'll be grand, and the people of Belfast said, it'll be fine, and then they just moved on. It, yeah, that is just wonderfully Irish in so many ways. So we have rugby kind of keep, keep, keeping the party line, so to speak, um, through partition. It's quite interesting because do you stop in 1990 with rugby as well? Um, the reason for 1990 is that the governing body affiliation data and the, essentially the, the data in its rawest form that's allowing me to trace the geographical patterns and spread of the game for rugby ended in 19, around 1990. Therefore, that was the provisional point in which I stopped and for soccer it ended in I think 1987, 88. So the choice of 1990 is unfortunate because if I had extended it another five years, obviously you have the point of professionalism in rugby, 
which would have been interesting to to look at, but I guess there's always a postdoc option. <laughs> I'm joking, no, no. I've already said I'm not going to year 10, so I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, so sorry, that was the, the question I was going to ask, and obviously is we had the professionalization of rugby in 1995. So I suppose, how do we track the course of rugby um, in Ireland from, say, the 1920s to even 1950s or 60s? Because I know there, there's a, quite a big disparity, and we've talked about this before, between the four provinces, between Ulster, Leinster, Munster and Connacht. Is there a coordinated approach to support rugby in the like in an all Ireland sense, or is it we're just going to let it play out as it will? Leinster, um, Ulster, and then Munster will be strongholds, and then Connacht. My understanding or my sense is Connacht is largely neglected by the IRFU for many decades, and it only really ticks up with the professionalisation in '95. That would be pretty much spot on, I would say, that um, that overview of things. Interestingly, the only thing, the only time the structure of the RFU, sorry if I correct what I previously said, was ever threatened, was in September 1945, whenever the RFU was meeting to resume play after the, the emergency or the Second World War. And there was a threat from Connacht to succeed from the RFU, and such as Leinster had done from the RFA in 1921, as a result of their the representation on the RFU Council was, if not downgraded, they, they weren't given the upgrade that they were promised. And uh, there was calls from local newspapers in Connacht to, to break away from the, the RFU, which you might have had Connacht um, becoming like Catalonia in national football. Not being an international team, but not being a, a sort of province either, being somewhere in, betre- in between. But... It never came to pass, but there's no doubt that Connacht was structurally underrepresented both on the RFU Council and in terms of from 1874 to 1966, only six players from who were at Connacht clubs during that time represented Ireland. That is just... I mean, stunning. there might have been so many more players who did once represent Connor clubs who had since moved on, but in terms of players who at that point were at Connor clubs, there was only six. Whereas Guy's Hospital in London had somewhere in the region of 11 or 12. So a hospital in London had double the Irish internationals that Connacht, a whole Irish province, had. So I know that's kind of anecdotal, but it's, but it's still it's clear that they were, yeah, they were underrepresented. There's no doubt about it. And something then that interests me, and you've already touched on rugby. And this is still the case by and large, has this weird conveyor belt where it's private fee-paying schools provide the vast majority, or in some cases, the entire team of, say, an Irish team or a Leinster team, Munster, um, Ulster, or, or Connacht. Is there a sense, has the IRFU ever, say, in that 1920s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, have they largely been content with allowing private schools to kind of be the conveyor belt at very low cost to the IRFU? Or is there an opportunity or any efforts to really fund a grassroots game? Because it's, it seems that they have a very laissez-faire, libertarian approach to funding um, in, like for vast periods of kind of the 20th century. It's interesting that we're doing this podcast today because that this is exactly what I'm working on at the minute is how the IRFU in both parts of Ireland responded to the widening of access to secondary education, which was 1947 in Northern Ireland and 1967, as you know, in the South. Before then, both the Ulster branch and the three Southern branches were pretty much the entirety of their schools affiliations came from, as you say, fee-paying schools. After educational reform, the, the best example I can give is from Ulster because they have the most complete archival data. So until 1947, there was actually only 10 secondary schools in the whole of Northern Ireland. And if you're saying, you know, there's only 10 in the whole of Northern Ireland, it's no surprise to find out that none were affiliated to the RFU. They were just basically trying to survive. But after 1947, there was a slow but steady building of, I wouldn't say it replaced fee-paying schools because until the present, they're still the core of school drug being ulcer, but they added, I would say it's probably fair to say they added an additional base to the game. So there was their traditional 
like I say, the role of traditions being very important. They're traditional sort of fee-paying, or as we call them at home, voluntary grammar schools, because obviously we've got like 17 different educational systems at home. But the, the voluntary grammar schools stayed as the key constituent to the school of rugby base in Ulster, but by 1990, there was an equal amount of secondary and intermediate schools affiliated to the Ulster branch. So within 40 years, the Ulster branch had successfully branched, branched out, for want of a better word, into the, the new educational sector and had bolstered their, their base to include the, the non-traditional sector, I guess they would put it. In the South, it's, in the South it was, it's, I haven't quite been able to dig into it as much because I don't have the 30, sort of year-by-year affiliation list at this stage. But definitely, as you, as you know from your own experience, the sort of the fee pen schools in Dublin, the likes of the Black Rock and the St. Andrews, whatever, were always the sort of key drivers of, of school rugby in Leinster. Um, but hopefully in the next few months, I might be able to get into doing a similar job with, say, the Munster Connacht or the Leinster records, as I've been able to do with the Ulster branch records. And, and we'll, we'll actually touch on kind of finding source material, because I know myself, it can be quite difficult to actually get sources, especially from some of the fee-paying schools. Uh, Blackrock College, for example, in Dublin, have a wonderful archive that, ha- unfortunately, there was a fire about a decade and a half ago. So I remember going through old photographs, and there's literally fire-burned, you know, singe marks around the photographs. What's, what school did you go to? I, I was Castanar College, so which would have been well, St. Vincent's I'm College. Su- I'm surprised you weren't accused of starting the fire. Yeah. <laughs> I could have done it during my rugby playing days. Uh, we probably would have done a bit better. But so Blackrock obviously had fire uh, dangers. You've talked about Connacht potentially seceding from from the union, which sounds very uh, political. Are there any shocks to the Irish rugby system? Because again, as someone very ignorant to it, it feels like professionalization in the mid '90s is really the first time that the IRFU has to like really soul search and evolve in a major way. Is there, are there any shocks to the system, you know, prior to that point? Yeah, for me, the, the biggest crisis they faced in the period that I'm looking at was in February 1972, which was after Bloody Sunday in Derry and the, at the end of January, the British Embassy in Dublin was burnt to the ground by protesters. And two of the five nations fixtures, as it was in those days, in Dublin, which was... Ireland were due to be at home to both Scotland and Wales. Both Scotland and Wales decided that they were going to refuse to travel to fulfil the fixture, which my reading of the the response to this from within the IRFU and the, the sort of Irish Times and whatever was almost a sense of embarrassment that because of the the events to which the IRFU had no control, you know, other international teams weren't willing to travel to Dublin to play Ireland and all this sort of stuff. Uh, in the weeks that followed, there was allegations, at least, that um, clubs from, from, say, Ulster were being instructed not to travel to Dublin and vice versa. Sorry, clubs in Dublin were being instructed not to travel to Belfast to play league matches or play, you know, fixtures against uh, senior clubs in Belfast. I have no idea whether that was part of the hysteria at the time or whether that was really the case, but uh, that was in the local sort of media coverage here in Dublin. Um, and therefore, this, the consequences of that was that there was a big black hole in the RFU's finances in 1972 because the two, their two home fixtures in the, in the Five Nations were cancelled. Um, in the two years that followed, and this is the interesting bit for me, in 1973, there was a a study by Sean Diffley, The Men in Green, A Story of Irish Rugby. And in 1974, the RFU's own officially sanctioned centenary history by Edmund van Esberg, both published and both, in my reading anyway, sought to completely distance the, both rugby and their RFU from the sort of sectarian conflict and from the sort of the violence that had caused the fixtures to be postponed in 1972. That was not true only of the Troubles, but that, that stretched back to the, the sort of home rule in Irish Revolutionary Era too. They tried to suggest that, well, not tried to, they explicitly suggested that rugby was apolitical 
that it sort of it eschewed political labels, and it was where the you know the rugby men of Ireland came together to put all that sort of nonsense aside for the good of the game, so to speak. You know, so um, so the rugby's relationship to the troubles, especially, is what I'm working through at the minute, and it seems to be one of there's a concerted attempt to try and distance themselves from the you know the the shooting and bombing that was going on around them. So that's what I'm trying to unscramble at the minute. Um, and actually, something I suppose connected to that that I'm interested in for some strange reason is the issue of national anthems uh, with, say, rugby in Ireland. Because I think I'm right in saying it's not actually until '95, maybe, that Ireland's call becomes kind of the rugby anthem, and it's a very rousing but very apolitical. Um, like it's if you if you read the lyrics of Ireland's call, it's very clearly walking on eggshells compared to say the Irish soccer anthem Aaron Levine, which is you know soldiers of the rising and it's all fighting for the motherland do flags and anthems is that a point of contention in the troubles in say the irfu or it's more over in say the soccer federations 1953 i think um ireland were due to play france at ravenhill in belfast in a five nations game and god save the queen Sorry, God Save the King, as it was at that stage, was played as the home anthem before the game. Uh, and that was the biggest crisis relating to flags and anthems that I've come across. Um, the the reaction within the both the national and provincial press in Ireland was borderline hysterical. You had you know the the or the the Law Gray Pensioners Association were writing letters to the Ulster branch of the RFU saying that they were a disgrace and they were anti-Irish and imperialist and all this sort of stuff. It was, um, it, it certainly got got under people's skin all over the island. But that definitely was the the biggest crisis regarding anthems and flags that was in the period I'm looking at. As a result of that, Ravenhill did not host another. Irish international game, I believe, until, and this this one was in our lifetime, until they played Italy as a warm-up to the 2007 World Cup, if you remember. Mm-hmm. I think that was the next time that they were able, they were given a game to host an international game. I mean, someone may, some people might say that was because of the dilapidated nature of Ravenhill and needed upgraded and whatever, but I would say that it's at least partially connected to the fallout from the the, the anthem dispute of 1950. Two or fifty-three, I can't remember exactly. But other than that, the until Phil Coulter and Ireland's call in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, there doesn't seem to have been any further ramifications arising from the the nineteen fifty-three um, farce, I would say. Um, as for soccer, there was discussions about national anthems. I would have to clarify exactly in the 1920s, there was instances where games were played with a song that I'm not actually familiar with, Let Aaron Remember, was used as a national anthem in the early days. Um, someone like Cormac Moore or Paul Rice might know more about this to me, but I definitely read reference to that being used at some stage. Um, so you, you think there might be room for maybe in future like a Daniel O'Donnell because we've never had a fixed anthem in, in either federation. So, I mean, really, the Daniel if, time is now is what you're saying. If I'm, if I'm to respond now and say Daniel O'Donnell should be tasked with this, I'll never be invited on to anything ever again. <laughs> so I am going to distance myself wholesale from that one. That's a very Irish reference and I'm sorry. Um, so something- nothing, nothing against Daniel though, just to be clear. Um, don't know why that popped into my head. It's because I'm missing home uh, this time of year. So something you that just revealed we... far too much about yourself there. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm proud of my cringy Irish heritage. So something we've been kind of touching upon that we probably should address is the difficulty, and we will avoid very obvious uh, global pandemic um, disruptions because I don't think anyone could have foreseen, and if they did, they're probably up to their eyes in stocks and Zoom and Pfizer. But what difficulties do you encounter um, kind of trying to find source material 
in Ireland. And I don't know if this story is actually true, but I remember, I think it was Mike Cronin, who again is another uh, well-known Irish historian, saying that at some point the IRFU accidentally nearly threw out a lot of their files when they were moving offices or you know moving their records from one to another. There was kind of a, a miscommunication and someone found like a stack of you know caps and records from the 1920s and 30s in a skip somewhere before they were saved. So Ireland has uh, sometimes a haphazard way of keeping its records. Have you encountered any difficulties, say, accessing the FAI, the RFU, individual schools, or has it just been a case of finding it and then spending six months down a rabbit hole looking at violence or flags or anthems or player numbers? I think it's more that the problem has been, if there's a problem, it's my curious mind taking me down the rabbit hole about football violence uh, or you know, chasing that down for whatever it was, five or six months. Uh, the governing bodies, to be fair to them, have been very, very cooperative in in giving the giving me permission to look at the their archives where it was needed. Um, individual clubs, there's the occasional archive relating to such as Linfield Football Club at the Public Records Office in Belfast. Um, for me, it was more that, and you probably remember when I first met you, and just before I started this, cricket was also included in my in my proposed title at that stage, which I don't know how that was going to be feasible for somebody. Never mind me. Um, so there was no sources to be found, essentially equivalent to that which I have access to for soccer and rugby. So cricket had to be quietly disposed of from the title at some stage throughout which is a shame because I'm probably the only person that's ever come from West Belfast that actually loves cricket and I was really looking forward to to looking at the history of cricket but it was not to be on this occasion anyway so if anybody listening to this has you know a box in their attic with loads and loads of old records of cricket in Ireland get in touch Um, not now not now but after I finish this after I finish this it, it is interesting because that kind of tracks, you know, Sean Reid has written on cricket and the height of its popularity in the late 1800s. And then it just sort of phases out. So, I mean, it's interesting that your own experience almost tracks the history of cricket in Ireland as a whole. A lot of enthusiasm at the start, and then it just kind of disappears. Until St. Patrick's Day 2007, when we somehow beat Pakistan and everybody loved cricket again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we get the weird crossover where people talk about the benefits of hurling for cricket and vice versa. Because um, isn't Owen Morgan a uh, hurler at some point and then he moves to cricket? Or so is all, it- I can tell you, all I can tell you that personally I'm, I'm rubbish at both, so I don't think there's, there's much of a crossover. I, I had about a one-month uh, career, so you're, you're, not in, um, you're, you're not in bad... Well, you are in bad company, actually. But I suppose I know your, like, your research, if it hasn't come across is very, very in-depth on the men's game. Like, it is this very long durée, um, for want of a better phrase, study of the men's game. Do you think there are records for someone else to do, say, a comparable? Because I know Helena kind of highlights there are a lot of gaps in, say, the women's game. Do you think that the records are actually there in, say, the IRFU or the FAI for someone to do a comparable study on the women's game? Because really yours is going to be this amazing in-depth, decade-by-decade study of the men's game that was really sorely needed in filling out huge gaps in, say, the mid to late 20th century. Do you get any sense that actually the, the paper trail is there for the women's game? Because I know Helena has shown that it's actually really hard to find, <laughs> like, to find physical material, breadcrumbs on all of this. For soccer, I would say a tentative yes, because there was a, an annual report of the Ladies Football Association of Ireland. Um, within the FAI's Men's Association minutes from around 19, no, the mid-1970s. So there is some paper trail, as you could say, there, if you're trying to do the sort of quantitative study that I'm attempting. Um, but then, I say, like I say, the, that only lasts for about 10 years before the, the archive as a whole sort of comes to a shuddering halt. So I wouldn't know where to pick it up from there. As for rugby, I didn't see much reference to the the ladies game at all within the the RFU records anyway. Um, but again, they they may exist in other locations or in a private, probably most likely in a private collection somewhere. 
Yeah, I think that's something that Helena has shown is that, say for the women's game, it's more about finding those hidden, you know, in an attic somewhere besides granddad and grand, grandmom's like books and all the clothes. Um, so it is just interesting to think about the disparities between uh, the the vast materials. Because again, when we first met, I remember going back to my wife and saying, "I have this is an amazing project that Conor Murray is doing." I have she no idea thought, how she, anyone she probably could. thought. She probably thought, "Why is he taking time off from playing rugby to do that?" <laughs> she got really impressed for about ten seconds. Then I was like, "Not the rugby player." She's like, "Oh, okay." It sounds interesting, but then that kind of killed any further inquiry, unfortunately. Um, but it is this long, like, very in-depth study. But as, I suppose as we start to wind out, what have been some of the biggest challenges for you, aside from the inquisitive mind, which will go down rabbit holes? Has it been actually funneling everything in? Because, I mean, don't sell yourself. Sure, you have done a lot of research on cricket, on hockey, obviously on soccer, and on rugby, and you've come down then into soccer and rugby so has the most difficult thing been condensing all of this into like a digestible history or yes that, that's been a key and i'm sure my supervisor would probably agree with you on that one but it's been trying to keep it within something within a time frame and within a, a sort of scope or a context that's manageable because uh other than the the rabbit hole about football violence you know this could have went down multiple different sort of tributaries for want of a better word, mm-hmm. and taking a whole different approach. Whereas eventually what I settled on was the sort of social aspect of these sports in terms of why do people choose to play certain games. So the source question has been, other than cricket, has been mostly fine. You know, it's, it's uh, I've been able to get access to what I need to see. I think it's more just trying to, trying to, well, sorry. The, the obvious one that I'm forgetting is training, doing the necessary training to be able to use statistical software to try and conduct sort of regression analyses to try and map, or not map, sorry, to try and test the strengths of rugby or soccer at a given time against the prevailing sort of wider context of sort of socioeconomic trends, demographics, things like that. So learning how to do that was a Significant challenge. It was part of a module at the School of Law and Government in Glasnevin, but we're making progress on those fronts and we're having, I'll give you a little, the most recent example. Based on my best calculations, there was one affiliated rugby club for every 6,481 people in Ireland across my time period. I mean, I can't wait until the pub quizzes start to come back, Connor. <laughs> well, and if that's the case, you need to know that there was also one club for every 13,228 Protestants of all Protestant faiths. I'm not sure what to do with that research or that that knowledge, but I am going to shunt it into a conversation later. Um, This is how how I spend my Tuesday evenings calculating (laughs) things like this. That was actually last night, so I'm not not kidding. But for, for a benefit, because I think when the dissertation gets submitted and then other people can read your work like we will actually finally get a firm grounding on the 20th century because there has been really wonderful work like Liam O'Callaghan, Connor Kern, obviously Tom Hunt, um, excuse me, Pat Bracken who have done like very regionalized in-depth studies but to have that on an all-island framework like it's really going to help lazier historians like my good self who kind of deal in anecdotes that we will actually have kind of cold hard facts for the development of these sports in that all-island multi-decade approach that, that was my the reason for my approach is well maybe even subconsciously is due to where i come from these issues tend to just become the terrible phrase political footballs you know where it's just a shouting match between two opposing points of view so the reason i went down the statistical route is to try and cut through all of that you know sort of very very polarized conjecture i guess uh but like you say it's it's those sort of regional studies from the likes of connor curran and Liam callahan are definitely the template in which i'm trying to stretch this onto a sort of an island or an all-ireland sort of level so if it wasn't for those very very important regional templates this arguably wouldn't even be possible at this stage so thank you to connor and to liam and to tom etc for those uh 
those um, templates for myself. I suppose as a final question, you spoke at the BSSA conference in 2019. Yes. Um, do you remember when there were conferences in person? Wasn't that wonderful? We could actually just have a podcast about in-person conferences and the history of them and how they're wonderful. Um, if people want to know any more about your research, um, where, where have you published? Because you have published work from, say, your master's. And then where can they find out any more information uh, about you? Okay, well, one of the previously published journal articles from my master's, um, which was published in Soccer and Society, is actually being published as part of an edited, edited collection early next year, which is face-to-face enduring rivalries in world football. So if anybody's interested in why northern-born Catholic footballers decide to declare for the Republic of Ireland and things like that, that's where you need to go. Um, also, COVID permitting, whether I'm actually able to access the sources, I'm going to be contrib- I'm hoping to be contributing a piece on hockey in Ireland, 1918 to 2000, to the Atlas of Irish Sport, where I believe I will be in good company with yourself. Um, further anecdotes comparing the number of people to the number of cattle in the Republic of Ireland in 1960, you can find on Twitter at Minto91. And if anybody wants to uh, read over my grumpy thoughts on issues such as Brexit. I have numerous articles on RTE Brainstorm about how it affects Derry City Football Club, for example. And I, I love that you have gone from academic to old man yells at cloud in possibly about two sentences. Um, so I will wrap up again by genuinely just singing your praises because I think this is going to be a very exciting piece of work for our sport historians, our historians and historians of sport. More generally, I would encourage people to reach out to you on Twitter. We'll have a biography of you um, to go with the podcast so people can reach out. But on that note, I will thank you again for your time, Connor, and stay, stay safe. And more importantly, at the current moment, stay sane. Thank you very much for your time, Connor. Good talking to you again. Best luck.